Chapter One, Part Two of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter One, Part Two. For some time after this, he was quieter more conscious when he drank, more backward from companionship. The disillusion of his first carnal contact with woman, strengthened by his innate desire to find in a woman the embodiment of all his inarticulate, powerful religious impulses, put a bit in his mouth. He had something to lose which he was afraid of losing, which he was not sure even of possessing. This first affair did not matter much. But the business of love was, at the bottom of his soul, the most serious and terrifying of all to him. He was tormented now with sex desire. His imagination reverted always to lustful scenes. But what really prevented his returning to a loose woman over and above the natural squeamishness was the recollection of the paucity of the last experience. It had been so nothing. So dribbling and functional that he was ashamed to expose himself to the risk of a repetition of it. He made a strong, instinctive fight to retain his native cheerfulness unimpaired. He had naturally a plentiful stream of life and humor, a sense of sufficiency and exuberance, giving ease, but now it tended to cause tension. A strained light came into his eyes. He had a slight knitting of the brows. His boisterous humor gave place to lowering silences, and days passed by in a sort of suspense. He did not know there was any difference in him, exactly. For the most part, he was filled with slow anger and resentment. But he knew he was always thinking of women, or a woman, day in, day out, and that infuriated him. He could not get free, and he was ashamed. He had one or two sweethearts. Starting with them in the hope of speedy development, but when he had a nice girl, he found that he was incapable of pushing the desired development. The very presence of the girl beside him made it impossible. He could not think of her like that. He could not think of her actual nakedness. She was a girl, and he liked her, and dreaded violently even the thought of uncovering her. He knew that in these last issues of nakedness he did not exist to her nor she to him. Again, if he had a loose girl and things began to develop, she offended him so deeply all the time that he never knew whether he was going to get away from her as quickly as possible or whether he were going to take her out of inflamed necessity. Again, he learned his lesson. If he took her, it was a paucity which he was forced to despise. He did not despise himself nor the girl, but he despised the net result in him of the experience. He despised it deeply and bitterly. Then, when he was twenty-three, his mother died, and he was left at home with Effie. His mother's death was another blow out of the dark. He could not understand it. He knew it was no good his trying. One had to submit to these unforeseen blows that come unawares and leave a bruise that remains and hurts whenever it is touched. He began to be afraid of all that which was up against him. He had loved his mother. After this, Effie and he quarrelled fiercely. They meant a very great deal to each other, but they were both under a strange, unnatural tension. He stayed out of the house as much as possible. 
He got a special corner for himself at the Red Lion at Cossete, and became a usual figure by the fire, a fresh, fair young fellow with heavy limbs and head held back, mostly silent, though alert and attentive, very hearty in his greeting of everybody he knew, shy of strangers. He teased all the women who liked him extremely, and he was very attentive to the talk of the men, very respectful. To drink made him quickly flushed, very red in the face, and brought out the look of self-consciousness and unsureness, almost bewilderment, in his blue eyes. When he came home in this state of tipsy confusion, his sister hated him and abused him, and he went off his head like a mad bull with rage. He had still another turn with a light o' love. One Whitsuntide he went a jaunt with two other young fellows on horseback, to Matlock and thence to Bakewell. Matlock was at that time just becoming a famous beauty spot, visited from Manchester and from the Staffordshire towns. In the hotel where the young men took lunch were two girls, and the parties struck up a friendship. The miss who made up to Tom Brangwen, then twenty-four years old, was a handsome, reckless girl neglected for an afternoon by the man who had brought her out. She saw Brangwen and liked him, as all women did, for his warmth and his generous nature, and for the innate delicacy in him. But she saw he was one who would have to be brought to the scratch. However, she was roused and unsatisfied and made mischievous, so she dared anything. It would be an easy interlude restoring her pride. She was a handsome girl with a bosom and dark hair and blue eyes, a girl full of easy laughter, flushed from the sun, inclined to wipe her laughing face in a very natural and taking manner. Brangwen was in a state of wonder. He treated her with his chaffing deference, roused but very unsure of himself, afraid to death of being too forward, ashamed lest he might be thought backward, mad with desire, yet restrained by instinctive regard for women for making any definite approach, feeling all the while that his attitude was ridiculous, and flushing deep with confusion. She, however, became hard and daring as he became confused. It amused her to see him come on. "'When must you get back?' she asked. "'I'm not particular,' he said. There the conversation again broke down. Brangwen's companions were ready to go on. "'Art coming, Tom?' they called, or art for stopping? "'Eh, hey, I'm coming,' he replied, rising reluctantly, an angry sense of futility and disappointment spreading over him. He met the full, almost taunting look of the girl, and he trembled with unusedness. "'Shall you come and have a look at my mare?' he said to her, with his hearty kindliness that was now shaken with trepidation. "'Oh, I should like to,' she said, rising. And she followed him, his rather sloping shoulders and his cloth riding gaiters, out of the room. The young men got their own horses out of the stable. "'Can you ride?' Branquin asked her. "'I should like to if I could. I have never tried,' she said. "'Come, then, and have a try,' he said. And he lifted her, he blushing, she laughing, into the saddle. "'I shall slip off. It's not a lady's saddle,' she cried. "'Hold your tight,' he said, and he led her out of the hotel gate. The girl sat very insecurely, clinging fast. He put a hand on her waist to support her, and he held her closely. He clasped her as in an embrace.' He was weak with desire as he strode beside her. The horse walked by the river. 
"'You want to sit straddle-leg,' he said to her. "'I know I do,' she said. "'It was the time of very full skirts. "'She managed to get astride the horse quite decently, "'showing an intent concern for covering her pretty leg. "'It's a lot's better this road,' she said, looking down at him. "'Aye, it is,' he said, "'feeling the marrow melt in his bones from the look in her eyes. "'I don't know why they have that side-saddled business, "'twisting a woman in two. "'Should us leave you, then? "'You seem to be fixed up there.' "'called Brangwen's companions from the road. "'He went red with anger. "'Aye, don't worry,' he called back. "'How long are you stopping?' they asked. "'Not after Christmas,' he said, "'and the girl gave a tinkling peal of laughter. "'All right, bye-bye,' called his friends, "'and they cantered off, leaving him very flushed, "'trying to be quite normal with the girl. "'But presently he had gone back to the hotel "'and given his horse into the charge of an ostler, and had gone off with the girl into the woods, not quite knowing where he was or what he was doing. His heart thumped, and he thought it the most glorious adventure, and was mad with desire for the girl. Afterwards he glowed with pleasure. By Jove, but that was something like. He stayed the afternoon with the girl, and wanted to stay the night. She, however, told him this was impossible. Her own man would be back by dark, and she must be with him. He, Brangwen, must not let on that there had been anything between them. She gave him an intimate smile, which made him feel confused and gratified. He could not tear himself away, though he had promised not to interfere with the girl. He stayed on at the hotel overnight. He saw the other fellow at the evening meal, a small middle-aged man with iron-gray hair and a curious face like a monkey's, but interesting in its way almost beautiful. Brangwen guessed that he was a foreigner. He was in company with another, an Englishman, dry and hard. The four sat at table, two men and two women. Brangwen watched with all his eyes. He saw how the foreigner treated the women with courteous contempt, as if they were pleasing animals. Brangwen's girl had put on a ladylike manner, but her voice betrayed her. She wanted to win back her man. When dessert came on, however, the little foreigner turned round from his table and calmly surveyed the room like one unoccupied. Brangwen marvelled over the cold animal intelligence of the face. The brown eyes were round, showing all the brown pupil, like a monkey's, and just calmly looking, perceiving the other person without referring to him at all. They rested on Brangwen. The latter marvelled at the old face turned round on him looking at him without considering it necessary to know him at all. The eyebrows of the round, perceiving but unconcerned eyes were rather high up, with slight wrinkles above them, just as a monkey's had. It was an old, ageless face. The man was most amazingly a gentleman all the time, an aristocrat. Brangwen stared fascinated. The girl was pushing her crumbs about on the cloth uneasily, flushed and angry. As Brangwen sat motionless in the hall afterwards, too much moved and lost to know what to do, the little stranger came up to him with a beautiful smile and manner, offering a cigarette, and saying, "'Will you smoke?' Brangwen never smoked cigarettes, yet he took the one offered, fumbling painfully with thick fingers, blushing to the roots of his hair. Then he looked with his warm blue eyes at the almost sardonic lidded eyes of the foreigner. 
The latter sat down beside him, and they began to talk, chiefly of horses. Brangwen loved the other man for his exquisite graciousness, for his tact and reserve, and for his ageless, monkey-like self-surety. They talked of horses, and of Derbyshire, and of farming. The stranger warmed to the young fellow with real warmth, and Brangwen was excited. He was transported at meeting this odd, middle-aged, dry-skinned man personally. The talk was pleasant, but that did not matter so much. It was the gracious manner, the fine contact, that was all. They talked a long while together, Brangwen flushing like a girl when the other did not understand his idiom. Then they said good-night and shook hands. Again the foreigner bowed and repeated his good-night. Good-night and bon voyage. Then he turned to the stairs. Brangwen went up to his room and lay staring out at the stars of the summer night, his whole being in a whirl. What was it all? There was a life so different from what he knew it. What was there outside his knowledge? How much? What was this that he had touched? What was he in this new influence? What did everything mean? Where was life, in that which he knew, or all outside him? He fell asleep, and in the morning had ridden away before any other visitors were awake. He shrank from seeing any of them again in the morning. His mind was one big excitement, the girl and the foreigner. He knew neither of their names, yet they had set fire to the homestead of his nature, and he would be burned out of cover. Of the two experiences, perhaps the meeting with the foreigner was the more significant. But the girl—he had not settled about the girl. He did not know. He had to leave it there as it was. He could not sum up his experiences. The result of these encounters was that he dreamed day and night absorbedly of a voluptuous woman and of the meeting with a small withered foreigner of ancient breeding. No sooner was his mind free, no sooner had he left his own companions, than he began to imagine an intimacy with fine-textured, subtle-mannered people such as the foreigner at Matlock, and amidst this subtle intimacy was always the satisfaction of a voluptuous woman. He went about absorbed in the interest and the actuality of this dream. His eyes glowed. He walked with his head up full of the exquisite pleasure of aristocratic subtlety and grace, tormented with the desire for the girl. Then gradually the glow began to fade, and the cold material of his customary life to show through. He resented it. Was he cheated in his illusion? He balked the mean enclosure of reality, stood stubbornly like a bull at a gate, refusing to re-enter the well-known round of his own life. He drank more than usual to keep up the glow, but it faded more and more for all that. He set his teeth at the commonplace to which he would not submit. It resolved itself starkly before him for all that. He wanted to marry, to get settled somehow, to get out of the quandary he found himself in. But how? He felt unable to move his limbs. He had seen a little creature caught in bird-lime, and the sight was a nightmare to him. He began to feel mad with the rage of impotency. He wanted something to get hold of, to pull himself out. But there was nothing. Steadfastly he looked at the young women, to find a one he could marry, but not one of them did he want, and he knew that the idea of a life among such people as the foreigner was ridiculous. 
Yet he dreamed of it, and stuck to his dreams, and would not have the reality of Cossete and Ilkston. There he sat stubbornly in his corner at the Red Lion, smoking and musing and occasionally lifting his beer-pot, and saying nothing, for all the world like a gorping farm-laborer, as he said himself. Then a fever of restless anger came upon him. He wanted to go away, right away. He dreamed of foreign parts, but somehow he had no contact with them, and it was a very strong root which held him to the marsh, to his own house and land. Then Effie got married, and he was left in the house with only Tilly, the cross-eyed woman-servant who had been with them for fifteen years. He felt things coming to a close. All the time he had held himself stubbornly resistant to the action of the commonplace unreality which wanted to absorb him, but now he had to do something. He was by nature temperate. Being sensitive and emotional, his nausea prevented him from drinking too much. But in futile anger, with the greatest of determination and apparent good humor, he began to drink in order to get drunk. "'Damn it!' he said to himself. You must have it one road or another. You can't hitch your horse to the shadow of a gate-post. If you've got legs, you've got to rise off your backside some time or other. So he rose and went down to Ilkston, rather awkwardly took his place among a gang of young bloods, stood drinks to the company, and discovered he could carry it off quite well. He had an idea that everybody in the room was a man after his own heart, that everything was glorious, everything was perfect. When somebody, in alarm, told him his coat-pocket was on fire, he could only beam from a red, blissful face and say, "'It's all right, it's all right, it's all right, let it be, let it be!' And he laughed with pleasure, and was rather indignant that the others should think it unnatural for his coat-pocket to burn. It was the happiest and most natural thing in the world, what? He went home talking to himself and to the moon that was very high and small, stumbling at the flashes of moonlight from the puddles at his feet, wondering what the Hanover, then laughing confidently to the moon, assuring her this was first class, this was. In the morning he woke up and thought about it, and for the first time in his life knew what it was to feel really acutely irritable, in a misery of real bad temper. After bawling and snarling at Tilly, he took himself off for very shame to be alone, and looking at the ashen fields and the putty roads, he wondered what in the name of hell he could do to get out of this prickly sense of disgust and physical repulsion, and he knew that this was the result of his glorious evening. And his stomach did not want any more brandy. He went doggedly across the fields with his terrier, and looked at everything with a jaundiced eye. The next evening found him back again in his place at the Red Lion, moderate and decent, there he sat and stubbornly waited for what would happen next. Did he, or did he not, believe that he belonged to this world of Cassate and Ilkeston? There was nothing in it he wanted, yet could he ever get out of it? Was there anything in himself that would carry him out of it? Or was he a dunder-headed baby, not man enough to be like the other young fellows who drank a good deal and wenched a little without any question, and were satisfied? He went on stubbornly for a time, then the strain became too great for him. A hot, accumulated consciousness was always awake in his chest. His wrists felt swelled and quivering. His mind became full of lustful images. His eyes seemed blood-flushed. 
He fought with himself furiously to remain normal. He did not seek any woman. He just went on as if he were normal, till he must either take some action or beat his head against the wall. Then he went deliberately to Ilkeston in silence, intent and beaten. He drank to get drunk. He gulped down the brandy and more brandy, till his face became pale, his eyes burning, and still he could not get free. He went to sleep in drunken unconsciousness, woke up at four o'clock in the morning, and continued drinking. He would get free. Gradually the tension in him began to relax. He began to feel happy. His riveted silence was unfastened. He began to talk and babble. He was happy and at one with all the world. He was united with all flesh in a hot blood relationship. So after three days of incessant brandy drinking, he had burned out the youth from his blood. He had achieved this kindled state of oneness with all the world, which is the end of youth's most passionate desire. But he had achieved his satisfaction by obliterating his own individuality, that which it depended on his manhood to preserve and develop. So he became a bout drinker, having at intervals these bouts of three or four days of brandy drinking when he was drunk for the whole time. He did not think about it. A deep resentment burned in him. He kept aloof from any women, antagonistic. When he was twenty-eight, a thick-limbed, stiff, fair man with fresh complexion and blue eyes staring very straight ahead, he was coming one day down from Cossethe with a load of seed out of Nottingham. It was a time when he was getting ready for another bout of drinking, so he stared fixedly before him, watchful yet absorbed, seeing everything and aware of nothing, coiled in himself. It was early in the year. He walked steadily beside the horse. The load clanked behind as the hill descended steeper. The road curved downhill before him, under banks and hedges, seen only for a few yards ahead. Slowly turning the curve at the steepest part of the slope, his horse bridging between the shafts, he saw a woman approaching but he was thinking for the moment of the horse. Then he turned to look at her. She was dressed in black, was apparently rather small and slight beneath her long black cloak, and she wore a black bonnet. She walked hastily, as if unseeing, her head rather forward. It was her curious, absorbed, flitting motion, as if she were passing unseen by everybody, that first arrested him. She had heard the cart and looked up. Her face was pale and clear. She had thick, dark eyebrows and a wide mouth, curiously held. He saw her face clearly, as if by a light in the air. He saw her face so distinctly that he ceased to coil on himself and was suspended. "'That's her,' he said involuntarily. As the cart passed by, splashing through the thin mud, she stood back against the bank. Then, as he walked still beside his bridging horse, his eyes met hers. He looked quickly away, pressing back his head, a pain of joy running through him. He could not bear to think of anything. He turned round at the last moment. He saw her bonnet, her shape in the black cloak, the movement as she walked. Then she was gone round the bend. She had passed by. He felt as if he were walking again in a far world, not Cossethe, a far world, the fragile reality. He went on, quiet, suspended, rarefied. 
he could not bear to think or to speak, nor make any sound or sign, nor change his fixed motion. He could scarcely bear to think of her face. He moved within the knowledge of her, in the world that was beyond reality. The feeling that they had exchanged recognition possessed him like a madness, like a torment. How could he be sure? What confirmation had he? The doubt was like a sense of infinite space, a nothingness, annihilating. He kept within his breast the will to surety. They had exchanged recognition. He walked about in this state for the next few days, and then again, like a mist, it began to break to let through the common barren world. He was very gentle with man and beast, but he dreaded the starkness of disillusion cropping through again. As he was standing with his back to the fire after dinner a few days later, he saw the woman passing. He wanted to know that she knew him, that she was aware. He wanted it said that there was something between them. So he stood anxiously watching, looking at her as she went down the road. He called to Tilly. "'Who might that be?' he asked. Tilly, the cross-eyed woman of forty who adored him, ran gladly to the window to look. She was glad when he asked her for anything. She craned her head over the short curtain, the little tight knob of her black hair sticking out pathetically as she bobbed about. "'Oh, why!' she lifted her head and peered with her twisted keen brown eyes. "'Why, you know who it is. It's her from the vicarage, you know.' "'How do I know, you hen-bird?' he shouted. Tilly blushed and drew her neck in and looked at him with her squinting, sharp, almost reproachful look. "'Why, you do. It's the new housekeeper.' "'Eh, and what by that?' "'Well, and what by that?' rejoined the indignant Tilly. "'She's a woman, isn't she? Housekeeper or no housekeeper? She's got more to her than that. Who is she? She's got a name.' "'Well, if she has, I don't know,' retorted Tilly, not to be badgered by this lad who had grown up into a man." "'What's her name?' he asked more gently. "'I'm sure I couldn't tell you,' replied Tilly, on her dignity. "'And as that all as you've gathered, as she's housekeeping at the vicarage?' "'I've heard mention of her name, but I couldn't remember it for my life. "'Why, you riddle-skulled woman of nonsense, what have you got a head for?' "'For what other folks has got theirs for,' retorted Tilly, "'who loved nothing more than these tilts when he would call her names. "'There was a lull.' "'I don't believe as anybody could keep it in their head,' the woman-servant continued tentatively. "'What?' he asked. "'Why, her name. How's that? She's for some foreign parts or other. Who told you that?' "'That's all I do know, as she is.' "'And where do you reckon she's from, then?' "'I don't know. They do say as she hails for the pole. I don't know,' Tilly hastened to add, knowing he would attack her. "'For the pole? Why do you hail from the pole? Who set up that menagerie confabulation?' "'That's what they say. I don't know. Who says?' "'Mrs. Bentley says as she's for the pole. Else she is a pole, or summit.' Tilly was only afraid she was landing herself deeper now. "'Who says she's a pole?' "'They all say so.' "'Then what's brought her to these parts?' "'I couldn't tell you.' "'She's got a little girl with her.' "'Got a little girl with her? "'Of three or four with a head like a fuzzball. "'Black? "'White. "'Fair as can be, and all of a fuzz. "'Is there a father, then? 
Not to my knowledge, I don't know. What brought her here? I couldn't say without the vicar axed her. Is the child her child? I should think so. They say so. Who told you about her? Why, Lizzie, a Monday we seed her going past. You'd have to be rattling your tongues if anything went past. Brangwen stood musing. That evening he went up to Cossete to the Red Lion, half with the intention of hearing more. She was the widow of a Polish doctor, he gathered. Her husband had died, a refugee, in London. She spoke a bit foreign-like, but you could easily make out what she said. She had one little girl named Anna. Lensky was the woman's name, Mrs. Lensky. Brangwen felt that here was the unreality established at last. He felt also a curious certainty about her, as if she were destined to him. It was to him a profound satisfaction that she was a foreigner. A swift change had taken place on the earth for him, as if a new creation were fulfilled, in which he had real existence. Things had all been stark, unreal, barren, mere nullities before. Now they were actualities that he could handle. He dared scarcely think of the woman. He was afraid. Only all the time he was aware of her presence not far off. He lived in her, but he dared not know her, even acquaint himself with her by thinking of her. End of chapter 1, part 2